past 11 weeks, he's covered 40 some odd chapters in three minutes. That's good to put it in perspective, though, with the whole Bible. The Bible is 1,186 chapters. I feel like I count them up today. I'll know. You just know that I know because I sat at a mom one day. It's 1,186 chapters. So in 11 weeks, if I covered 40, that's roughly four weeks. So if you want to do the math, think about how many years it has to be sitting out there for us to go through the whole Bible. Especially at the pace we're going to go today. Today we're going to start in on the letter of First Peter. Um, this, this, is, this is a really great letter. But I want us to start today by, by instead of thinking about it as, as a letter that you find in the table of contents and covers about three to five pages in your Bible, depending on font size, looking at what it really was. And as you can see on your, your bulletin, today we're going to look at one whole letter. So at this rate, you have to be about 20 million years old to get through the whole Bible. I don't know how many verses are in the Bible. I know there are about 150 in 1 Peter. And no, we won't be in this book for three years. Yes, today. But what we're going to do is, is set the stage for the five chapters of 1 Peter that we're going to look at over the coming weeks. Uh, with the life of David, we kind of did the 30,000-foot journey over with glimpses and sound. This one, we're going to get down in the, in the trenches. We're going to walk through... Um, these chapters deeply with Peter and be amazingly surprised at how they apply to our lives. So we're going to look at today in three simple things. We're going to look at who wrote the letter, who he wrote it to, and why he wrote the letter. And I can do all of that off of one verse, and I can ramble about that for three hours. So I hope you don't have lunch plans today. Um, I realize people will walk out if I do that, so I won't really do it. I'll probably walk home, too, if my wife walks out. Let me... Um, let me start with a, an illustration as we get into the who wrote it section. Imagine that, that you are a soldier, or you want to be, and you're an aspiring soldier. And you're going to go into battle, and you have two people you can train on. One of them is a, a, an intellectual giant. I mean, a person who has interviewed every famous general in their lifetime, who has read every book, who has observed every battle, who knows the nuances of fighting. You can fit with the intellectual giant. The other person is, is a, a proven field general, someone who might not have the, the IQ, but someone who, who has had the training, but also got out on the field and has a proven track record of success. Who would you want to train you, the, the academic or the hands-on guy? Well, don't answer because you rule my illustration if you don't agree with me, but I would choose the hands-on guy. I think we've all met people in our lives who are, who are um, able to give us advice about anything, and there's a reason that in college, the second year is called the sophomore year. Sophomore means wise school. I, I think that when you look at graduates from college and they start their jobs and, and being one of them, my, my first day of work, I showed up in a beautiful suit with coat suspenders and wingtip shoes. I mean, I was dressed to the nine. And I walked into this place and people were wearing, you know, SpongeBob square pants, shirts and jeans and and, and I got myself locked into a hallway because I didn't have a magnet card. I tried to go to the bathroom, and I'm begging on doors. Let me in, let me in. Because, see, I was coming in to, to be the CEO. I figured a week, a week and a half, I could do it because I knew everything. Well, I had a lot of head knowledge. I was probably not an intellectual giant, except in my opinion. But I'd rather sit under the field general. I'd rather sit with someone who was, who was out in the field, who smelled the smells, who saw the sights, and dealt with it under pressure and showed success. Well, in the letter of 1 Peter, that's our opportunity. We have the opportunity to learn from the proven field general. 
See, Peter was not an intellectual giant. They say, Pastor, how can you say such a thing about Peter? You, know, you want to be careful because he's up there now. What, what happens? You call him an idiot. Well, check this out. Flip over back to Acts 4.13. Just so you know, I'm not, I'm not picking on I'm Peter. This is biblical. You know the Bible said that he's not an intellectual giant? Acts 4.13 says very clearly, in between these two pages, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived, here it is, that they were unage, uneducated, common men. This guy who wrote this letter, God tells us in his word, was an uneducated common man. Is that how you think of Peter as? Now, realize what it's not. It's not saying that Peter was not you know, middle of the road, straight C student, kind of had some problems. It's just saying that Peter wasn't trained to be a rabbinical scholar. He was a layman. So, if you don't have a seminary degree, I got good news for you. God can use you mightily. I got other news for you. If you do have a seminary degree, you want to be real careful. Because who are the intellectual giants of this time? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. How did they do with Jesus? Not so hot. Now understand, I, I hold education in high regard. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort to get a seminary degree. But that's a tool that can be extraordinarily dangerous or extraordinarily helpful. And it's only helpful if you sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. We don't need to be scholars to serve God mightily. In this letter, what we're seeing is God, and you'll see throughout the Bible, God uses people who want to be used, not people who think they know it all, like me coming out of college going to work. It's people who go through the experience and realize, oh boy, it's a long road ahead in the corporate world if you want to go somewhere. You're going to put in your time, you're going to learn, you're going to learn, first of all, that you're not the smartest person in the place, and you know the least in the place, and you better ask questions and learn. Well, God's the one we get to ask questions to. And we're going to see this letter written by Peter, a man who asks a lot of questions. So who wrote the letter? A common layman. Here's a little bit more about Peter. You, you know he was a fisherman, right? He came from a family business, a family fishing business. So he wasn't, you know, the, the CEO of, of Dow Chemical in Jerusalem at the time. He, he was a fisherman. He worked with his, his uh, family. He worked with a brother named Andrew, who Jesus also called. Um, Peter was married. Did you know that Peter was married? Peter, um, how do I know he was married? Uh, I don't know. I know he was married because it's in, it's in uh, chapter 4. See, I didn't mark this right. If you don't believe me, I'll find it. I think it's Matthew chapter 4. Right after Jesus called Peter, Jesus went and healed someone. The person he healed was Peter's mother-in-law. Now, I am I, I have a seminary degree, so I'm an intellectual giant. But I happen to know for a fact that mother-in-laws come with wives for husbands. I didn't get a mother-in-law until I got married. No comment on if it was good or bad, but I now have a mother-in-law. It's a good thing because I'm married. So Peter was married. So realize that little interesting side note that'll come into play. Peter wasn't talking about marriage from an outside perspective. He had a wife. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her other than he had a wife. Peter was also an apostle, we see um, in, in verse 1. What's an apostle mean? You ever, you ever stop and think about that? It says right here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What does it mean to be an apostle? Turn on the TV nowadays, you'll see some apostles. Are those are those the um, the Christian channel? Sometimes you'll you'll see a church with the apostle so and so preaching today or teaching today. Or 
So do we still have apostles today? What's an apostle according to Scripture? How does Peter claim to be an apostle? Well, here's what it means biblically. An apostle had, had certain requirements, and you're not going to find biblical apostles today based on these requirements, and you'll see why. First and foremost, you're called by Jesus himself. Like, well, you know, God led me to faith, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus, flesh, flesh Jesus, before he was in heaven, or after a quick return, met you, spoke to you, and called you directly. That makes 12. One fell away, plus another who's called. Paul's exemption to that is how did Paul come to faith? On the road to Damascus. So he had a personal, direct interaction with the risen Christ. The second thing is they were witnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. They saw him working. They, they physically with their eyes to see what was going on with Jesus, the things he did. Here's the kicker, the hard kicker too, is they were trained by Jesus directly. You say, well, how was Paul trained? Well, when you read close in Galatians and Acts, you see that Paul had a three-year sabbatical right after he came to faith. And how did he grow in his knowledge? Well, you'll notice a very interesting interaction with Jesus takes place through those years. So you have to you have to be called by him directly, see his, his ministry in person, trained by him directly, and when you get those things together, something happens. You're called an apostle, you're called by him, and your words begin to carry special weight. It doesn't mean that anything an apostle says is inspired by God, but certain things apostles say, as, as recorded in Scripture, are the inspired word of God. This is God communicating through people. It doesn't mean that God put... Peter in a trance, you know, one day he's like, Peter, sit down, I'm going to use you. So Peter sits down, his arms like, oh, it's like Ouija board, God, what do you put a pen in it? I can't do this without a pen. That's not how he did it. But God orchestrated Peter's life to form him into the man he desired for him to be perfectly and spoke through him to communicate these specific words directly. Peter was an apostle. That's how we, that's how we know who he was, a married apostle who was a fisherman who was a common lame, all right? That's the guy who's writing this. When he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Pastor, come on, we gave five words. It's going to take all day? No, it's not going to take all day, but I want you to know Peter is more than a name on top of a letter in your Bible. It's written by a real person who really lived 2,000 years ago, who one day, if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven and you can meet him. He's not sitting off in some special skybox in heaven, you know, wave, waving comes out, you know, like first of the month, and he waves out to the crowd, and everyone's like, No, you get to meet Peter. It's a real guy who we get to meet one day. Originally, Peter was known as Simon Bar Jonah. That was his uh, his given name. And originally, he was brash. He was a vacillating guy. He was um, John MacArthur says about him. He was usually the first one into a situation and the first one out. He was quick-tempered and skittish. He was a a typical Christian in the sense that he had a carnal side. Sometimes he do what God wanted him to do. Other times he do what the flesh wanted him to do. Peter had some amazing, amazing failures. He uh, was the guy, you remember, who denied Jesus right before Jesus was crucified. He had some amazing successes. You remember, he also walked on water. And people think, Jesus walked on water, remember that? Well, yeah, Peter did too. Peter sunk in the water also because he took his eyes off of where they should be focused. Peter grew from the man who denied Christ and sunk in the water. In the book of Acts, we see a guy who comes out, the same guy who denied Jesus not, not long before, and preaches to the, to the crowds in dangerous settings. And he's leading people to faith. He gets imprisoned. And while he's in prison, he's miraculously set free. And what does he do? He, he, what does he do? He runs home and locks himself up again? No. He goes right back out, despite the warnings of, of the council, and he starts preaching again. Peter, ultimately, we know from, from history, was crucified for his faith. Peter was a guy who grew up hot-tempered, skittish, and vacillating, and died a man unwilling to deny Christ. That's the guy who wrote this 
letter, a layman who loved Jesus like you wouldn't believe, who we can all look up to and say, wow. And what we say next is important, how we take this letter. It's either going to be, I want to be like that, or that's cool, not for me. If it's, that's cool, not for me, you're going to be bored out of your mind. I'm like, should I be saying that? I'll see people next week. All right. If that's not what you want, you're going to be bored out of your mind. But if you want to be radically changed and be a person who lays it all on the line for Jesus, and I'm sure Peter right now, if he, if he could hear this, is saying, please listen, it's so worth it, it's so worth it. This is a letter for you. So who did he write to? Who did Peter write this letter to? Actually, I had this great line, and I missed it, so I'm going to use it. It says, Peter started as a man who was sure of his ability to do anything, who became a man who realized on his own he could do nothing, but through Christ he could do anything. Sound like a Bible verse? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through he who gives me strength. Peter learned that. We can learn that too. So who did he write it to? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, isn't that obvious? That's who he wrote it to, right? Isn't that so simple? You just read that, you're like, okay, move on. Those places probably mean nothing to you. That was the route this letter took. It doesn't mean it made just a few stops. But those are the major provinces in the Roman Empire. And this traveled through the major provinces, making many stops along the way, being read to the Christians in the Roman Empire. But who were the Christians? It says, elect exiles. What does that mean? Elect exiles. In a, in a sense, it does. They, they, they chose to be exiles. You want to learn a Greek word today? You can write it down. You can impress people. It comes from word peripatamus. Good word. Sound really cool? Intellectual giant, right? In Greek, pi alpha. I'm kidding. Rho. P a r e e p i d e m o s. All right, is that better? It means the the straight definition is one who comes into a city or land to reside there by the side of natives. That's what the exile part. Means. You know what it means? A stranger in a strange land. That's what exile means. <clears throat> he wrote this to so sojourners or strangers in strange places. Is this your home? Do you feel at home in this world? Don't answer out loud because the honest answer is yes. This ain't home. I went to London for a long period of time, a length period of time in college. And, and I loved it. It was it was fun. I, I shed, I, if I was a wrestler, I would shed. I think I lost 30 pounds in London. And, and, and I weigh a lot more now than I did in college. So I came home. And when I arrived home, my mom and sister looked at me and went, oh. I had a great time, but it wasn't home. It didn't have home cooked. It didn't feel like home. The, everything was smaller. The soda cans were, were smaller in London. We lived in flats. The, the bathrooms were, they, they looked strange. The, the, the toilets don't have water in them in London. I don't know if you know that. It's a strange thing. The smells were different. The, everything was different. I, I really liked it. I enjoyed it tremendously. But after a while, I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to what I was used to. I wanted to go back to where I belonged. I could survive in London just fine, but I knew it wasn't home. After a while, I got homesick. I wanted to go home. Well, this is kind of like our London. Everything's off. Nothing's quite right. The danger is, I knew where home was. I, I had it in my mind. I could see it. I could think about it. We don't always do that, do we? Thinking about home. What's our home? It's heaven. We've never seen heaven. We know a couple people in the Bible, Paul and John, got a glimpse of heaven. And when they got that glimpse, they got a, whoa! Like, I, I, 
just want to go there. You read the book of Revelation, you read Paul after his, his talking about going to a, a certain um, part of heaven. Once you get a glimpse, you, you will not ever want to think about anything else. So why don't we think about our home? There, I think there are three primary reasons. First, all of us, myself included, neglect this book a bit. This gives us a lot of glimpses of home. But because we don't glimpse fully, we don't think about it the right way. The second reason is we don't focus on it. We go through life focused on the here and now. We, we focus on where we are, what we need to do to get through this. And we don't have time to think about the eternal aspect of it, the where we're going, the how does it play out. Think about how you make decisions. Is it based off, you know, it, it's like investing for retirement. We talk about people, how, how, how foolish can you be? You've not saved money. You're 45, you're 50 years old. You've never put away a dollar for retirement. Don't you plan ahead? Well, you can make that into a pastoral comment. You're going to be living for eternity. Have, have you not invested wisely for eternity? How are you planning on, uh, when are you planning on getting on that? How we live, time, talent, treasure, all has eternal consequences. We get, we get focused on the immediate gratification and don't think about the eternal aspect of it. The third reason is we fall in love with this world. Even if you live in a bad neighborhood, in a bad house, and you don't like, you know, it's, it's dripping pipes in the basement like we have going on sometimes, and you got problems in this life, we still fall in love with it. We get comfortable with it. If I ask you this right now, who wants who wants to leave right now and go to heaven? I don't know that I do because I got little kids and one on the way. I kind of want to hang around for a bit and see what goes on. I got to take care of people. I got to control people. Do you see that I'm not really talking in a godly manner here? Yeah, it's not it's not wrong to really, really, really enjoy this life. God gives us this life to enjoy, but He gives us this life as preparation because, folks, we're away from home. We're far away from home. We're strangers in a strange land. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we're citizens of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says we're ambassadors for Christ. Here's how it goes, folks. We're not home. We're in a strange land. We're in a strange land and we're ambassadors. So imagine you're the ambassador for the United States in, in, in England. So I kind of like it here. I'm not going to do my ambassadorial role. I'm just going to hang out with the native. You know what? I'm going to be just like the natives, they're not even going to tell difference that I'm not from here. Now, maybe that's a hard example because we look, we look and sound kind of similar. So imagine you're in Dubai and you're an American. You don't really speak the language well. You, you dress differently. You act differently. Your preferences are different. All of a sudden you say, I want to be just like a Dubaian. Is that a, is that a, what do you call people from Dubai? Dubai Indians. I don't know. But we tend to start swaying into the culture. We, we we skip our ambassadorial responsibilities that we were sent with, and we start just looking and acting more and more like people. Then. Paul tells us to be all things to all men, so you want to fit in. I'm not saying you go to a foreign country wear a tutu and a clown mask and you know, sing, sing show tunes. You want, you want to be, uh, be able to fit into society, but you're going to look different. And, and something we need to decide as we look at this letter is do you want to look different or do you want to look the same? When someone looks at you, do they say, you don't look like you're from here? Or they, do they say, oh, you're from where I'm from. See what I'm saying there? Being a Christian is kind of a tough thing. I think too often we, lo we look at it and, and we think, well, it's kind, of, it's kind of convenient. It's societally acceptable. It's got some upside. People don't seem to mind it much. I think I'll be a Christian. That's not being a Christian. It's not about convenience. It's about facts. It's truth and lie. Being a Christian is about accepting who Jesus is based on the facts, based on an examination of it and living in light of that. Now, Jesus makes us a promise that we will almost certainly face persecution. We'll talk about that in one second. In our culture, we don't face much persecution. 
So being a Christian can be convenient. But you need to think about this. There's no kind of love in Jesus. There's no kind of following Jesus. No more than there's a kind of skydive. You know? Well, I went up in the plane and I stuck a foot out the door, so that counts as skydiving. I did it. No, you can't kind of jump out the plane. You jump out the plane or you don't jump out the plane. Being a Christian is about jumping or standing. You can't kind of jump. Believing in Jesus is a radical step where we say, I love you. I'm going. It may take about 40 years, but, but it's a momentum movement. It's a bad illustration. I just realized here. It's a momentum, momentum movement when you start going out of the plane. You don't have to be midair living crazy, but you have to fully trust Christ. You have to believe in Christ to be a Christian. And all that comes with it comes with it. One of those things is persecution. Who did he write this letter? Um, why did he write this letter? This is how it applies to our lives. Peter wrote this letter to the persecuted, I'm sorry, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. What was going on? This letter was written about A.D. 65. We know that for a fact. Peter was, was writing to people in Rome. Peter had been to Rome. Interesting side note here. Peter was not the founding apostle of the Church of Rome. How do I know that? Paul went there, right? Paul is very clear that he never goes to preach where someone else has already preached. Paul was a, a, a missionary who would go to new lands. Paul went to Rome. Peter came to Rome after Paul. We know that based on historical facts. So Peter was not the founding apostle of the church in Rome. That honor goes to Paul. Peter did a mighty work through God's power in Rome. little interesting side note there. He wrote because there was persecution going on in Rome faced by Christians that, that was tremendous. The Women's Book Club book from this last month, The Last Disciple. Again, you can read it if you're, if you're a man or if you don't go. This book uh, did a lot of historical setting on the persecution people were, were facing. I won't go into graphic detail, but it was graphically nasty what happened to people. Um, they, they were, if you were a Christian, you were persecuted in the sense killed, tortured, maimed, uh, isolated, beyond what you can really grasp in our culture. And this started because way back in the day, when um, Christianity first started, it was viewed as a sect of Judaism. And the Romans had kind of this, this tense agreement with Judaism that they could function and they didn't overstep the lines. And, and the Jews were, were oppressed people, but they weren't persecuted like the Christians were. Well, before too long, and partially in like Paul going to um, Rome to share the gospel on his first imprisonment, they realized this isn't a sect of Judaism. This is belief in a man named Jesus. Well, the emperor of Rome was a deity in his eyes. So for Jesus to claim to be God's son was challenging Roman Roma, Roman. Roman authority. It was saying the emperor is not a deity because here's a deity. So they had to put an end to this. And there was an emperor named Nero who was literally insane. He wanted to put an end to Christianity. And in the book you guys read, that was a lot of the persecution was under Nero. And James wrote this letter during Nero's reign in AD 64, right before the letter was written, there was a big fire in Rome. And Nero blamed it on the Christians and wanted to have them all killed. So James wrote this to a group of people who were either in the midst of severe persecution or who were going to face it at any moment. So let me just stop and we, let's talk about this for a minute. This is a very important point. Has anyone here ever been uh, physically threatened for being a Christian? Has anyone ever felt, felt that, that death was a possibility because of your faith? Anyone ever been particularly persecuted for their faith? So we can skip this letter. I thought about this for quite a while. How does it apply to our lives? Now, this letter is written to strangers living in a strange land who are facing severe persecution. Now, you hear all the time, this is a Christian nation, right? Careful with that.
but we think, okay, it's a Christian nation. It, 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 you know, on our currency, it says, God bless America, when in reality our God should say, uh, money, money bless America. But are we really persecuted? Can, can we learn anything about this? Well, I'm going to contend yes. I'm going to contend also, though, that we're not particularly persecuted. And here's why. It's not because of society. It's because of us. In countries like China, people will, will risk their lives to, to get a copy of 1 Peter. Just have a copy in their house knowing that if it's ever discovered, they and their family could be killed. Why would they do that? People in other parts of the world will be killed for telling someone they love or know about Jesus, and they do it. Why? In America, if we even talk to someone about Jesus being the only way to God, we get so afraid that someone might look at us funny, they might think we're strange. Do you see a radical difference here? We all have, in my house, i got a bunch of these things. I, I have an addiction to buying Bibles, like some women have addictions to buying shoes. I, I got shelves of these things. Um, I try to keep them dust-free. But the reality is, even my Bible can collect dust. Most houses have Bibles that are dust-ridden. They, they sit in bookshelves. They're like, you have the big Encyclopedia Britannica, you got Webster's on a bridge, third edition, and a Bible. Every, every good library has to have them. But no one really reads that stuff. Well, people are willing to die for this because they know what it really is. Yet, in our country, too often, we fail to grasp that. Why would you die for the Bible? That's crazy. I don't even read the thing. You know what they're thinking about us? You got, you got a whole Bible at home in your own language that you can understand, and you don't read it? What? It's like someone seeing a fish sitting on the beach who can flop himself back in the water. He's like, I'm not going in. Why? You're going to die out here. I don't want to go in. What do you mean? We're swimming out here. It's so much fun. Come on out. It's where you're meant to be. People know something different outside of our country. I think, I know, that we have such a comfortable society, the devil doesn't have to mess with us in many other ways because we're complacent. We, we think it's a Christian nation, and, and we meet everyone, and 90-some-odd percent of them say, I'm a Christian, too. Well, if you ask that next question of tell me about it, tell me what that means, you, you learn a little bit more, that it's probably not over 90%, probably not even well over 10%, dare I say. People believe that a Christian is what society tells us. Someone who goes to church sometimes, and you just you, you like Jesus' teaching better than other people's teaching. That's not a Christian. But if you believe that way, you're not going to face persecution. And here's what I think happens. Here's what I know happens to me, okay? We don't face a lot of persecution because we don't live the radical lives we're called to. We, we kind of step back from anything that might be offensive. We think, well, if someone asks me about Jesus, I'll tell them. And then they ask and we botch it. And we're like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't even see it coming and I, I didn't know what to say and, and I, I just botched it. And that's about our, our attempt. In the Bible study, we were talking about evil last Friday. And the guy made Del Packett made the comment, if we really understood the reality of evil and the reality of heaven and hell, our efforts at evangelism would be drastically different. Here's the reality, folks. This is not it. This is a strange land that is only going to be temporary. The reality is heaven and hell. That's where eternity will be spent by every person. How we communicate that truth is a difficult thing. We're going to learn about that in this letter. But it's not about preaching at somebody. It's about believing it living it out, and being prepared to speak about it. Most people come to faith through an interaction with someone they know. We have, to, we have to have the credibility of people looking at us and saying, there's something unique, there's something strange about you. But the first thing we need to be willing to do is to be strong.
strange. Now you got to think about that. Do you want to be strange? Do you want to fit in? If you have kids, here's a really difficult thing. Do you want to raise your kids to be strange? Do you want your kids to not fit in? I was um, listening in on a conversation recently about a, a friend of mine who has young kids and he's considering homeschooling them. And if you homeschool kids, know from first experience, you're strange. And, I, and I'm strange besides being a Christian too. I, I can see that. But this person asked me, he said, do, do you want your kids to be wacky? Do you want your kids to be strange? And he said, I do. I want them to be incredibly, incredibly strange. So don't you want them to fit? And he says, no, because the world is full of people who don't love Jesus, are far from God, and are going to go to hell based on that position. And I don't want that for my kids. I want them to be strange. And I want to be strange too. That's a difficult thing that we all need to think about. Do you want your kids to fit in, parents? Or do you want them to be strange, realizing there will be persecution for that? Here's what persecution is in our country. You're not going to be killed for your faith. You can walk around with a Bible. No one's going to hit you with a stone. But you will face persecution like this. Sometimes it looks like family kind of shunning. You have gone over the top. Everything's so black and white. You're so intolerant. How can you believe that nonsense? That's kind of persecution. I have a family with not a single Christian in it. I'm not talking about my house. I'm talking about my extended family. Not a single Christian in it. I cannot interact with a single aunt, uncle, cousin, grandparent, parent, sister, brother-in-law who love Jesus. Do you know how strange I am to them? Incredibly, incredibly strange. And you know what makes me really mad? When they tell me I'm selfish and inconsiderate, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's difficult. It's not difficult like I'm going to be tarred and burned. It just wears on you. It's sad. It's a form of persecution. At work, sometimes, we will fail to receive promotions because we're Christians if we're living God's will. You know why? Because when the boss tells you to kind of skirt the edge a little bit and God says, no, sorry, I don't want you to do that, you're supposed to obey God. And you know what may happen? You may not get a promotion. Here's the scary thing. You may lose a job. And if you lose a job, you don't get a paycheck. And if you don't get a paycheck, you know what happens? <gasps> Nothing. God will take care of you. Now, I'm not saying go to work. Like, Pastor John said, go crazy. I quit. I love Jesus. I'm not working in this sin pit. Now, you're fired. Yeah! And then you go home. You're like, oh, shoot. You called me up. Uh, I made a mistake. Yes, you did. Because persecution isn't about intentionally wanting people to beat on you. It's not walking down the street going, I love Jesus, and you're going to hell. People will pick on you, and you, you deserve it, because you're a fool. Peter talks about this. It's about living out God's will and realizing when you do, people will think you're an idiot, think you're a stranger, and not want you to be a part of their group. Neighbors will not invite you to do certain things with them. You know why? Oh, you're a joy kill. One of those crazy Christians. No, we're not really joy kills, but yes, we're crazy. We don't face the persecution in our country, folks, because we fit in too much. We don't want to be strange. And that's okay. That's a choice we can all make. But if you want to live a radical faith, if you want to radically love Jesus and get the most out of life, you got to be living strange. And I can guarantee you, I know this for a fact, in heaven you will know this, and everyone who's there knows it fully now, if they could come back, they'd be stranger than they were. Because the strangeness that we're called to live out is a blessing for other people. Because one day, when that friend of yours who's always trying to get you to go out drinking with him, or the, the, the boss who picked on you and wouldn't give you a promotion, or, or the family member who said, you're so strange and I don't even know if I like you anymore, 
one day they're going to die. You know, people say there are two sure things, death and taxes. No, it's just death. You can get out of taxes. You can go to jail for it, but you can get out of taxes. When you die, you meet God, and a whole bunch of people are going to have one of these oh boy moments. Oh boy. He was not wrong. He was right. And Jesus said, you know, he was. They said, why didn't you listen? Well, because he was kind of strange. Yeah, I am too. But now strange looks different. Because now you're home. And this, well, they're not home. But now when you look at our real home, this is what you're supposed to look like. Now you look strange, and the sad thing is, I love you. I gave you every opportunity to come home, but you didn't want to come home. You refused to listen. You suppressed the truth. You can't come in because you didn't want this to be your home. God forced people into heaven. You wouldn't be a loving God. He'd be making someone who didn't want to spend any time on this side of heaven with him, forcing them to spend eternity with him. That's cruel. People think God's cruel for not letting everyone into heaven. God would be cruel if he let everyone into heaven. If for your entire life, you just said to your, to your earthly parent every day, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do to you. Leave me alone. Go away. I don't love you. I don't like you. And then you become an adult. Can, would they be loving to force you to stay home? They got to let you go. They would cry over it. They, they would weep over it. But a loving God couldn't force everyone into heaven. Being a Christian means you will almost certainly face persecution. Are you willing to do it? Here's the beauty, folks, in our country. You ain't going to die. You're not. You don't have trouble getting your hands on a Bible. There is no, no, no group of people sitting outside with machetes waiting to chop off our heads because we're meeting together to worship Christ. Think of the blessing we have. Think of the society around us who needs to love Jesus. Think how crafty the devil is to trick us that we should settle for kind of Christians, that we should try to fit in. If this is going to be over like that, that's, that's, that's you know what, Renee, you got grandkids. You remember when, when when Arnold was born. About like that? You know what it's going to feel like when we go to heaven this? About like that? Is it really worth sacrificing the gifts God wants to give us here and then? Is it really worth not being uh, obedient to God in people's lives around us? Is it, worth, is it worth fitting in and being cool for this? Remember how much effort we all put in in middle school and high school? Listen to this, guys. To fitting in and being cool how we wanted to be part of the crowd, how we wanted people to like us. And now you look back at those people how many years later, and you're like, why did I do that? Because some of them still act super cool, and now when they're, you know, 30 years older, it's not so super cool. The people who came through that well were the people who weren't trying to conform. Well, the Bible says something about do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know what this letter does? It's a transformation moment. We got five chapters we're going to look at over the coming weeks to let God transform our minds through the life of an apostle who wrote to people who were scattered and being persecuted. Got news for you, folks. We are scattered from home. We are being persecuted when we're living out our faith. And we have the ability to be changed so God can use us to change the world. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and he could have also written Chester County, Pennsylvania. Fits in dead perfect. It's a pretty amazing thing that God used Peter to write a book about 2,000 years ago that is dead-on applicable to this very moment. That's what we're going to look at over the coming weeks, and let me just end with, a, with an illustration here. Imagine someone gives you an awesome, expensive, incredible 
gift. I mean, one of those things that you're like, whoa. Talking costs more than you can even fathom, more precious than anything you can comprehend. And they give it to you and they say, I want you to use this and I want you to enjoy this for me. And they explain how to use it and how to enjoy it. You got three options. Option one, take it to the safe. You buy a big safe, you lock it in the safe. You know what's nice about that? You can't break it, can't lose it, nobody can take it from you. Option two, sell it. You see, if someone gives you a real valuable gift and you can get, say, 10 grand for it, and you can do some work with the 10 grand, sounds good, right? Well, the problem is the 10 grand goes away eventually. You're taking pennies on a dollar for a cheap substitute. That's option two. Option three is a scary option. It's to use it in the exact way it was called for. It's to listen to how the person wants you to use it, to understand the awesomeness of the gift, and, and, and to get the most out of it for the rest of your life. What would you do with it, assuming it's a material possession? It's a tough choice even with a material possession, isn't it? Because we have temporal needs we can cash it out for. We could look at it real pretty. I got a ring for my, my grandpa before he died that I like to keep locked up because I might lose it. But you know what? By not using it, I don't get to enjoy it. Well, the reality of the gift I'm talking about here, which I assume you know what it is, is that you can't lose it. It don't tarnish. Nobody can take it from you. But too often, we keep it locked up in a safe, compartmentalized in our life. We sell it for pennies on the dollar. God calls us to do something kind of like, I'll do a part of it, but I can have more fun over here. When the reality is, and we're going to learn this more and more day by day and fully in heaven, that when we use it perfectly and fully, we will be amazed by what God does in us and through us. The glimpse Peter had, I'm sorry, the glimpse John had of heaven, the glimpse Paul had of heaven changed them. We're going to take a glimpse in 1 Peter, not necessarily of heaven, but of God. And when we get that glimpse, we are going to be shocked. And we're going to be so shocked, God willing, that we're going to start to change. i got to warn you, though. You're going to get strange. you got to be willing to get strange. And that's the choice I want you all to make this week. How you're going to approach this letter. Are you going to be complacent with where you are in life? Are you going to be complacent with your current level of sin? Are you going to let the devil mess with your mind and say, well, you know, it is a little crazy talk. You don't want to be too strange. Does God say you have to be strange? Surely. Strange. Pay attention to devil talk that comes to your mind. Sounds something like, surely you will not die if you eat this fruit. Or you could say, God, it's a scary concept. Renee and I were talking and praying about this morning. It's a scary concept. Because, see, I want to follow God, but I want to do it on my terms without being afraid that he might ask me to do something that's too much for me. That he might want to take something from me or, or give something to me that I'm scared to handle or use me in a way that I'm not comfortable with. That's a scary premise. But if you're willing to do that and you trust that God is who he says he is, a perfect, loving, compassionate father, you realize he's not going to send you into the scary, haunted house you know, to freak you out. He's going to be wherever he takes you with you, and you can be no happier than in God's perfect will. This letter can help us to be more fully in God's perfect will, being used by God more fully if we're willing to let him. And that's what we need to think about. So there's your sermon on one verse. I promise next week will be more than one verse. But I want to go through this letter written by the Apostle Peter, the layman, the guy who was the denier who went to the crier, the shouter, the proclaimer of Christ, the guy who sunk in the water to the guy who healed people, the guy who denied Christ to who preached for him every opportunity he could, the guy who was afraid of a servant girl the night before Jesus was crucified 
to the guy who was willing to be killed for his faith. How does that happen? How would your life be different if it weren't for the Holy Spirit? For Peter, I can answer that real easily. He'd still be denying, lying, and running if it weren't for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he was proclaiming, he was leading people to faith, and he was willing to die for his faith. How do you do that? You can't do it on your own, folks. You can only do it through God's power. My prayer is that, not that we die for our faith, no, that we live for our faith. Five chapters, we'll see what God can do about that. I'm going to uh, close in prayer, and after I, I pray, we're going to take communion as a church family. And the way we do communion as a church is if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to partake. And as we, um, as we do this today, in, in light of 1 Peter, think of it this way. You ever hear of people who renew their wedding vows? You've been married, you, you renew the vows. I always thought that was a great way to get extra gifts, and I was setting up to do it you know, for, our, for our 20th anniversary. But it turns out we're not, not going to pull it off because the gifts wouldn't also be cost. But some people renew their wedding vows, and they do it to, to think back at what they did all those years ago to think about how they would do it all again. And, and they have a celebration of a time when they, they come back and they, 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 they're telling their wife or their husband, I, I would do it all again. I'm, I'm so happy. This is kind of like a renewal. You see, I talked about you can't kind of believe in Jesus. We're under a covenant with God through Christ's blood. A covenant isn't, isn't a, isn't a kind of. The Bible talks about covenants. It is a full commitment that God makes to us and that we make God. And what we do every time we take communion is we renew our vow to God. We say to him, I, I love you. I'm a Christian. I would do it all over again. You only come to faith once, but you can renew your vows every time you come to the communion table. And one of the beautiful things is that in our relationship with Christ and our commitment to Christ through the covenant of his blood, through God's power, we're kept in and as we're kept in it, we have the opportunity to be nourished through Christ, the, the living bread, the living water, through his blood. And that's why we, we partake of the body which was broken for us. We drink of, of the blood which was shed for us. This is a renewal of vows we're taking today, folks. And I just pray that, that as we take it, we focus on the, the facts of, of why Christ died for us, what it means to our lives, and that we would be willing through his grace, mercy, and strength to live the lives that he called us to the lives of strangers in a strange land who are going home about that fact. So let's pray, and as I finish, I just invite you to come, come forward. Father God, I, I thank you so much for Peter. I thank you for the fact that, that you took uh, a guy who fished for a living and turned him into, in your words, a fisher of men. God, as I, I look over Peter's life in preparation this week and continue to do so, I realize, and I'm sure I'll realize more so, that Peter didn't pull anything off based off of his crafty ingenuity, based off of his personal skills. He pulled off stuff because he leaned on you fully. When he didn't lean on you, it didn't go so hot. But when he trusted in you fully, it went really, really good, even when it seemed really, really bad for a time. God, I pray that, that we could be like Peter. I pray that we could be people who learn from our failures, which inevitably will come, but who will grow massively and have tremendous successes for your glory. Not so that people think, wow, you're smart, wow, you're cool, but so it's directed at you fully. Wow, God's smart, wow, God's cool, wow, God's awesome. But God, it's tough, 
we want to fit in. Nobody by nature wants to go out in the world and be a, look like a screwball who no one wants to hang around. That doesn't come naturally. And the fact of the matter is, in our society, where most people don't believe in Jesus, you're calling us to something where most people aren't going to think we're so cool. Even the grown-ups struggle with the cool factor. God, you know that. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us more fully so we're okay with that. Because we know cool is being like you. We know what home is more like, and we live in light of that. God, this will not come naturally. This will not be easy. And we thank you for that. Because if it was natural and easy, we wouldn't have to depend on you. But God, we also know based off of personal experience, every one of us, that you are always faithful, that you always provide, protect, direct, even when things seem out of control, that you use all things for the good of those who love you. And that's not just talk, that's true. God, help us focus on that. Help us focus on eternity. Help us focus on people like Peter, who you used mightily. Help us not make the same mistakes he made, but rather learn from his example and learn from his successes. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in all of our lives as we go through 1 Peter. In my life, as, as I'm reading and preparing, that you would speak to me, that you would convict me deeply and give me the words you wish for me to share with all, all of the church. I pray that you would have our, soft, our hearts soft, that they would be receptive to your word, that you could imprint that word on us with your signet ring and it would be marked deeply in our heart. God, please do a mighty work over these coming weeks through 1 Peter in our lives. I pray that boldly and mightily in the name of Jesus. And I ask also through communion today that you would strengthen us, that you would nourish us, that you would remind us of your incredible love and grace and mercy and remind us of the forgiveness you offered us through Christ. And it's in his name, through his precious blood, that we're able to pray all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.